Welcome to Grace Church's podcast. The message you are about to hear was recorded live during our Sunday service. Sermon notes can be found online at grace417.com. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back with you guys sharing today. I, uh, I was reminded this week of a, of a story from my brother and I uh, when we were a little bit younger. I think, I think we were both in high school, right around that age, and uh, we'd stay up late one night playing video games. Um, need for Speed, most wanted for those, for the nerds that need to know. Um, and so it's really late, we're on a couch. I'm on the far left side next to the wall. He has crashed on the other two cushions with his head towards me. Uh, and it's, it's relevant for the story that I'm not wearing a shirt. So I'm playing video games. It's getting late. It's getting cold. My hands are getting cold. And so I'm doing the in-between races. I'm like doing this and then going back. And I see his collar kind of sticking up as he's sleeping right there. He's on his stomach. And I just think, I'm a terrible brother. I'll just slide my hand. So I slid my hand underneath the collar of his shirt into the middle of his back with my ice cold fingers. And without moving at all, he just swings his hand up and slaps me like in the middle of my back, just like as hard as he can. And I immediately ball a fist up and look and realize the only thing I have is his face. Like I can do nothing but hit him like square in the face. And I decide that's not a good idea. And I turn and I punch the wall beside me instead. And I put a nice fist-sized hole in the wall beside me. And... He realizes immediately how close to death he was, and I have to explain in the morning why there's a hole in the wall to my dad. And I told him, I said, it was either the wall or his face, and I I thought the wall was the right choice at that point. And uh, I had to go to Lowe's and get a patch and some mud, and I got very good at patching drywall in my high school years, and I don't remember why. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about brothers today, or at least the story's going to start out with brothers. Um, we're going to talk about Jacob and kind of just go through um, a little bit of Jacob's life. We're going to start in, in uh, Genesis chapter 25. Um, and I just kind of want to, I kind of want to look at Jacob's life from, from start to towards the middle of it um, and just, just kind of see what we can glean from some of the stories around Jacob. So we're going to start out in Genesis chapter 25 and we are going to start in verse 23. <clears throat> God is talking to Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, and he says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red with his whole body like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So right away, we're, the, the writer of the story tells us that this is going to be a little weird. It, says, it has the line about the older serving the younger, which would have been culturally very backwards for them. Um, the older was the, the special treatment child. They got uh, the bigger inheritance. They got special um, servings of food during festivals. So the, the older was always the special one. And so right away, the story tells us that the things are going to be a little bit different on this one. Skip down in the same chapter to to verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. 
Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up. So Esau despised his birthright. And you know, brothers are mean to each other, but like Jacob doesn't have a single bowl of stew. He's making like a a pot of stew. And his brother comes in and asks for a bowl. And Jacob's just like, no. What are you gonna, how are you gonna pay for it? Like if I were making a whole pizza and my brother came in and was like, hey, can I get some of that? I think most days I'd say yes, but that's, that's not who Jacob is. Jacob's like, no, what are you going to give me? And Esau, a little dramatic, I'm going to die. What good is my birthright if I'm dead? And he sells his birthright to Jacob. So we learn a little bit about Jacob. He's not afraid of taking advantage of situations. We learn a little bit about Esau. Maybe he didn't value things as highly as he should have. Um, the birthright at this time, like I said, the older child were to get better treatment. If, a, if three children were had, and a parent passed away, the inheritance or the estate would usually be divided evenly among the three children in today's standards, unless there was something weird. In Bible times, the first, the oldest child, would get twice as much as the other two. So the oldest child, in the case of three children, would get 50%, and the other two would split the other 50% and get 25 each. So Jacob has essentially gone from getting 33% of what his father's inheritance would have been to getting 66% of it. So he's really cheated his brother out of a lot here, and, and we know that Isaac had a lot to, to give to his sons. <clears throat> so the third story we're going to look at, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's in Genesis chapter 27. Um, so Isaac is getting older. He says to Esau, Esau is an outdoorsman, he's a hunter, um, and, and it says, Jacob dwelled in tents, which is a nice way of, of saying he's a lot like me, where I just don't go, I don't really go outside. I, I, I can't handle the sun, it burns my skin very quickly, I don't tan, I just go from white to red, back to white again. So Jacob and I, you know, we relate. So Isaac brings in Esau and says to him, go out and hunt, bring me game that I love, cook the food for me, and I will bless you because I'm getting old, I'm blind, and my time is almost up. So Esau goes out into the field to hunt, and Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, says to Jacob, I heard your father say this to Esau, go and get two young goats, bring them to me, I will cook them the way your father likes, and you can take your brother's blessing, which is pretty messed up for the mom to like kind of jump into the mix on this. Um, But Jacob, realizing that he and Esau look very different, um, he says, isn't dad going to know? Isn't he going to realize I'm not Esau? And she tells him to trust her, and he goes and gets the goats. She cooks them. She takes the skin of the goats, and she puts them on the back of his hands and on the back of his neck. Whenever they would greet each other, they would put one hand around the back of their neck so that he would feel hairy like Esau. She puts Esau's best clothes on them so that he would smell like Esau, and, and as Isaac has already said, he was mostly blind. So Jacob comes in with the food, doing his best Esau impersonation, and Isaac immediately says, who are you? And he says, I'm your son, Esau. And he says, the voice is the voice of Jacob. Come closer so I can, I can feel you. And so he puts his hand on his neck, and he feels the hair on his hands and on his neck, and he says, the voice is Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So he eats the food. Jacob tricks his father. His father gives Jacob Esau's blessing, and then runs away because he knows Esau is still on the way doing the hunting and the cooking. So Esau gets there, and he says, I'm here, your firstborn son. And he says, who are you? And he says, it's me, Esau, your firstborn son. And he said, then who did I just give your blessing to? And 
Esau realizes what's happened. It's, it's actually very sad at the end of the, of the chapter where Esau's begging his father, please bless me, haven't you saved something for me? And I didn't really understand the importance of the blessing um, when I started this sermon, so I did some research on it. And essentially, Israel didn't exist as a nation at this point, so a lot of times the, the people of God refer to themselves as foreigners in a foreign land because they weren't Hittite, Amorite, Jebusite. They didn't really have a nation, a normal government. They were operating like a theocracy, with God being the top of it, but they didn't have a formal level of government. And so the blessing was a very ceremonial thing that fathers would pass down to their oldest. And it was supposed to kind of be the will of God being passed from father to son. And it was very, very important in this kind of theocratic setup that they had. And, and I didn't really understand all the cultural importance of that, but it was, it was a very big slight to Esau, uh, to the point that in, at the end of chapter 27, in verse 41, it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother. So he knew his dad was going to die soon. There would be a period of mourning for his father. And at that point, he was going to go kill his brother because of what had happened to him. So we see a lot in, in Jacob's life in these just couple of chapters. We see, um, we see some deception. We see some trickery. Um, we see him straight up lying to his father to, to steal his brother's blessing. And we, we get to see kind of that half of Jacob's life. So Jacob flees from where he lives to get away from his brother because he's afraid his brother is going to kill him. Um, he ends up living near his father's brother, Laban. And he falls in love with one of Laban's daughters. So Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And the Bible says that Rachel was the beautiful one, which isn't very nice for Leah, but that's what it says. And so Jacob falls in love with Leah, uh, with Rachel, sorry. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. So he asks Laban if he can work for him in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. And it's actually interesting in the verse, Laban says, it would be better for me to give her to you than to someone else in this pagan land which isn't a yes, which Jacob takes it as a yes. Jacob says, okay, great, I'll work for you, and for seven years was the agreement, and I will get in exchange, Rachel. But that's not necessarily what Laban says. Laban says, well, it would be good, it would be better if she married you than to somebody else. So Jacob works his seven years, um, and he, they have the ceremony. The bride would be veiled, and then they would go to the tent in the evening to consummate the marriage. And in the morning... Jacob realizes that he's, given, he's been given Leah in marriage instead of Rachel. And, of course, he's very upset. He goes to Laban and says, what have you done? Why have you given me Leah and not Rachel, which we agreed upon? And, you know, Laban says, well, we don't marry off the younger daughters until the older daughters are married. That's, you know, that's the custom in this land. And, obviously, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels here of what Jacob just did to his dad and what Laban just did to Jacob. You know, it's a little, little bit of poetic justice. Um, though messed up nonetheless. So they agree that, that Jacob will continue to work for Laban in exchange for marrying both daughters. He'll marry both Rachel and Leah, and he continues to work for Laban at that point. So in the next story uh, is in Genesis 30. So he's now married to both daughters, uh, and Laban says, you, you'll have to name your wages. You agreed to work for me for these 14 years for my two daughters, and now you'll, you'll need to have wages for working in the fields with my, my flocks. And Jacob says to Laban, I will take 
the lesser animals. I will take the spotted, speckled, and striped animals from your herd, and they will be my wages. Those will be counted as mine, and the pure and solid colored ones will be yours. So from a business perspective, this is a good deal for Laban. The, the lesser animals were the striped, speckled, and spotted ones. In the, uh, in the rules around sacrifices, you're not allowed to use striped, speckled, or spotted animals because they're considered lesser, they're considered impure. And so it's a good deal for Laban. So Laban's like, yeah, let's do that. Your, your animals will be the, stra- the, the spotted, speckled, and striped ones, and mine will be the solid colored ones. But it's not good enough for Laban. He goes and he, and he herds out all of the striped, speckled, and spotted ones, and he sends them away with one of his sons three days' journey. And when Jacob comes out the next day to collect his wage, there aren't any. And he's slighted again by Laban. And so Jacob decides... He puts together a plan. He goes and gets some sticks that the, the inside part of the stick is, is very light colored. It says white. And the outside part is understandably darker bark colored. So he goes and he takes the sticks and he, and he strips away pieces of the bark so that the sticks are dark light, dark light. And then he goes and he lays them in the troughs of the water of the herds. And his theory was the animals come to drink and that's typically where they mate. And if they mate in front of striped sticks, they will have striped offspring. And those offspring will become mine. And I don't know what Gregory Mendel would say about the genetic theory of of Jacob in this story, but it worked. God liked it. He thought it was fun. Um, It worked out. It says that that the animals had lots of striped and speckled animals. and, and it happened. So, so Jacob begins to collect his wages. He begins to get uh, more and more uh, at the end of chapter 30 in verse 43. It says, in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous, talking about Jacob, and came to own large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So Jacob and Laban go back and forth for a while. Eventually, Jacob just one night just buggers off. He just gets the wives and the kids and the flocks, and he just heads out. Doesn't tell Jacob he's taking his daughters and his grandchildren and leaving. So you kind of see the two halves of Jacob. You see kind of the early days of Jacob where there's a lot of, there's a lot of nonsense going on, and then you see the later times where he meets up with, with Laban, and there's a lot of what you sow, you will reap. You know, there are different kind of perspectives on it. Some people think it's wrong what Laban did to him. Some people feel like you kind of had it coming, you know, doing all the things that you did to Esau, which was really unfair. Um, but a question that comes up a lot in stories like this with, with kind of imperfect characters, where they, where they have these kind of stark character flaws, a lot of times the story hinges on those flaws. And the story becomes more powerful because of them. And, and a question that will get asked as you kind of dissect them and think about them is, did God make Jacob this way? Or did Jacob choose to be this way? Because the story wouldn't work so well. It wouldn't have so much poetic justice and be as fun as a story if Jacob hadn't done a whole bunch of tricking in the beginning and then got in a whole bunch of trickery at the end. And so the question becomes about free will and predestination and kind of these ideas of, is it all decided already or do we really have sway in all of this? Um, There's a song called Fate that I really like that says, can we change the grave that was dug for us or is this the only path to take? And it's, it's a question we've been asking ourselves as humans for thousands of years. Does what we do really matter? And oftentimes the argument that I hear for predestination or, or a lack of free will is the idea that if God already knows the outcome, then the outcome must already be decided. And what we do must not matter. And it sounds fine on the surface, 
But the analogy that I usually use as an argument against is if I brought my four-year-old in, Aiden, and sat him right here, and you put three pieces of candy in front of him and asked him to choose his favorite, I can tell you with a 99% accuracy which one he will choose. Now, is he predestined to choose that piece of candy? No, of course not. I just know my son really well, and I know which piece of candy he will choose. In the same way, God knows us very well. He knows what decisions we will choose. It doesn't take our free will out of the equation whenever God knows the outcome, because he only knows the outcome because he knows us so well. So in my opinion, Jacob absolutely has free will in all of this. He has choices, and he chooses to make some very questionable ones throughout these stories. But it is not because it's already decided to be that way. It's just the way that Jacob was. He often made choices in his life that were not good, and he often took things that he didn't necessarily deserve. And what I think is so crazy about all of this is the way that Jacob gets remembered for the rest of the Bible. The phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, becomes a staple of the Old Testament. In Hebrews 11, which is lovingly referred to as the Hall of Faith, Jacob is remembered as one of the great titans of faith in the Bible. He's remembered in this very positive way as kind of a, a forefather of the nation of Israel. Actually, Israel becomes his name later in his life, and that becomes the name of God's people. And I think it's interesting to read this story of Jacob and to think, that's the guy you wanted to name the country after? You know, this, this is the one, this is the, the best one that we can find. And I like this story a lot. There's a lot of fun twists and turns. It's a fun read. Um, but what I love about it most is the humanity that we get to see in Jacob's life. From birth to end of his life, we kind of have a chronicle of everything that happened to him. And throughout it, we see him making some very questionable decisions. And, and it, it makes it more relatable for me. I see myself in Jacob. You know, I've certainly made short-sighted decisions, spiteful choices. I've, I've been wronged and thought I should take what's mine because that's what's fair. I think he's a very relatable character because of that. And yet, at the end of his life, he's remembered as this great man of faith. And I love that idea because I hate when I hear people say, there's no way God can use me. I, what, what good am I? I can't go to church. Look at the way I dress or the way I talk or, or look at my past, look at my history, the things that I've done. I, I can't be the right person for that job. And I love this story because it's one of many examples in the Bible that God uses to show us that, that very real people with very real issues and mistakes can be used in amazing ways by God. You know, it's easy to think about some of the greatest characters of the Bible and think to yourself, you know, it's impossible. There's no way I could ever do something like that. You think about the courage of someone like Peter or the perseverance of Naomi and Ruth or the heart of King David or the, the humility of, of Mary Magdalene, and you think, how could I ever measure up? But when we look at these individuals' lives, we see that they're just people. We see that they're human beings. They don't have superpowers. They're not magical. They're not perfect. They make mistakes. They make short-sighted decisions. At some points, they completely stand in the way of God accomplishing his goals. At one point, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because he was so counter to what Jesus was trying to accomplish. But we don't remember those things. We remember Peter speaking after the day of Pentecost and 3,000 lives being added to the kingdom of heaven. We think of Naomi and Ruth overcoming their sorrow and venturing back to the people of God and becoming the great-grandparents, uh, the great-grandmothers of David and eventually Jesus. We think of, of David standing before Goliath as a child and bringing the giant down when Israel was too afraid to do it with their army. 
We see Mary Magdalene being the first to see Jesus Christ risen from the tomb. And we remember all of those great feats and those amazing moments of faith, but we let their mistakes fall to the wayside. We let them be forgotten. And I like to remember their mistakes. Not to be cruel, but to remind me that, that these people weren't perfect. They weren't unreal. They were people, and they did have flaws, and they did make mistakes. God doesn't wait for superheroes to accomplish his goals. He finds everyday people that are willing to step out in faith and to help him. And sometimes those people are flawed, and, and they have issues, and they have histories that they're not proud of. And I love that. I love that, that that little step of faith might mean nothing more than helping a coworker and no one ever hearing about it. And it could mean something as, as far as changing lives. I mean, Jacob founded a nation that still stands 5,000 years later. And I don't think he was thinking about that when he was peeling sticks. I think he was grumbling about his father-in-law. My challenge when reading this story is a simple question. Do you see yourself in Jacob? Because I do. I see my mistakes. I see my short-sighted decisions. I see all the reasons laid out in front of me of why I'm not a good fit, why I'm not the right person for the job, why I shouldn't be up here right now. I think of people like Moses and Gideon explaining to God why they're not the guy. Because I have a stutter. Because I'm the least among my tribe. I can't be me, Lord. But God doesn't say to these people, hey, I want to use you, but I need you to do a couple of things first. He just says, hey, I want to use you. I love that this story shows us that what you wear or how you talk or what's happened in your past doesn't matter. When, when God gives you an opportunity, puts something in front of you, if you're willing to take it, God can use you. Now, it doesn't mean you won't stay the same because you will. You will change. As you grow closer to God, your life will change. But there's nothing that says you have to change up front. There's nothing that says you have to get this under control first. You have to clean this up first before you can be used by God. If you're available, God will use you. I think of Isaiah, when God first appears to him, the first thing out of his lips are, Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Realizes right away, he's not the guy. And God says, but who will go for us? Who will I send? And he says, here I am. Send me. He realizes that he's not worthy of the mission, but God doesn't ask if he's worthy. He asks, are you available? And that's the question I hear out of this verse, out of this story, is are you available? Because God shows us through Jacob and many others in the Bible that if you will make yourself available and take those first steps of faith, God can make amazing things happen, even if you come from very humble backgrounds. And, and like I said, we, we will grow closer to God through those steps of faith. And we will, our lives probably will be changed by our proximity to God. But he doesn't say you have to change up front, that I can't use you if. There's no story like that in the Bible. So that act of faith could be, could be very simple for you. It could be as simple as helping out a neighbor. It could be praying for somebody you don't get along with. It could be volunteering for an outreach or a missions trip. There are certainly people who call this church home that didn't think their steps of faith would lead to where they are now. 
We've got several full-time missionaries that travel the world now because they started doing little steps of faith that brought them to amazing places. And that may not be what happens to you. It may be something as simple as helping to grow you and to change people's lives around you. But it could be, like I said, Jacob became the forefather of a nation that's still here 5,000 years later. But he has very humble beginnings. God can take small acts of faith and he can grow them. He can change your life and the lives of those around you. And the only thing he asks is, are you available? I think too often we get caught up in the whys. Why I'm not the right person for the job. Why it's not going to work out. But typically God's not asking the whys. He's just asking if you're available. Because if you're available and you'll take that step with him, he will make amazing things happen. And it has nothing to do with us other than that we're the tool available to him. But he can make those amazing things happen. This is why I love the story of Jacob. It, it reminds us that God does amazing things with imperfect people. And if we're willing to take that step of faith with him, amazing things can happen through us. He's asking a very simple question. Are you available? If you will make yourself available to him and take those small steps of faith, I don't know where they'll lead you. I can't promise you they'll be very simple and you won't have to get far out of your comfort zone. But if you will take those steps of faith, amazing things will happen and you will get to be a part of it. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you in prayer right now and I thank you for the story of Jacob. I thank you that, that you can use imperfect people to do amazing things. I thank you that as an imperfect person, I got to bring this word today. I, I heard Carrie Higgins say the verse from Isaiah today of here I am, Lord, send me. I heard the worship team talk about God doesn't need perfection. And that's just affirmation in my mind that, that you were here this morning, that your word was shared for this people. And I just pray that you would give us courage to take those steps of faith. I ask that you would give us courage to be imperfect people and be willing to be used regardless. None of us are perfect. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I am. But if we'll take those steps of faith, if we'll say, I'm available, you can make amazing things happen. You can change our lives. You can change the lives around us. In this story, you can found a nation. I pray that you'd give all of us the courage to take those steps of faith and the clarity to see them. That when those opportunities are presented for us, that we know what they are, we realize the possibilities in them, and that we have the courage to take that step. I thank you for all the people here today and anyone who might be listening online. I thank you that you use imperfect people and that we're allowed to be imperfect people. But as long as we'll offer our availability, that you'll use us. Thank you, Lord. We trust that this teaching made a difference in your life. If you would like more information on giving your life to Jesus, visit us on the web at grace417.com. Thank you for joining us and we pray you have a blessed day.